am RJ Bond and I am an investigative reporter slash journalist slash documentarian and I am here to tell you what I know. Boy, you guys are getting a lot of content today. It's been a while. I feel like I've been kind of shot out of a cannon because this is going to be a little longer show than it usually is. So uh, I apologize for the length of the show. We try to keep these things about 30, 45 minutes, but uh, this may be a little bit longer. We've had a lot of time to prepare, and that's always good when you're doing broadcasts. You want to be prepared. You want to have your information all ready to go. So uh, I hope you're doing well. You know, I think since we stopped broadcasting, I think COVID hit and kind of stopped life in general. And uh, so I hope that you're healthy. I hope your family's staying safe and healthy and uh, wear a mask. Uh, you know, we uh, we talk about it, but don't you know, wear a real mask. Don't wear one of those gaiters or a bandana looking like Jesse James. Those are said by the doctors to be the worst of all the kinds of uh, neck protection you can get. So just a little public service announcement there, wanting to put that out. Now we had talked a lot over the course of the last season of the show about the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department files that were part of the information that was given to a group that sued the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for not giving out information about the Tupac Shakur case. That company was called the Center for Investigative Reporting. They're actually a, I believe they're affiliated with the Sun, the UK Sun, which is a, a UK newspaper. They have a, an office in the United States and apparently the Center for Investigative Reporting is kind of like their legal arm. When they can't get things done, they tend to go and get uh, information from uh, um, the court or, or other information from a legal entity. They use this Center for Investigative Reporting to get that information out there. Well, as you also know, we've actually gone and over the last season given out lots of information that came as a result of the release of 1,400 pages of information from the Shakur case that Vegas police decided that they were going to release. And you go back and listen to last season, we had some good nuggets. We had the lady that was uh, one of the drivers in a car, uh, a truck actually, that was uh, uh, right there when the shooting happened. She was an eyewitness and talked about what she saw and did. And that added some incredible information to the things that we talked about. But what we're here to talk about today isn't what was in those files. What we're here to talk about today was what was not in those files. And even then, what was not in the files can be telling. All right. And in that case, I present to you the response that the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department gave in the Nevada Court of Appeals. In this response, they bucked the Center for Investigative Reporting's request to have all of the Shakur case files given to them. Uh, and um, law enforcement agencies do uh, a particular response to these requests in court. Uh, the same way that the city of Los Angeles did in the Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls killing um, case. When a law enforcement agency is asked to produce documents in court under subpoena, uh, the only response that they have other than producing the documents is to come up with a good reason why they should not. And there are literally nine different reasons that a law enforcement agency can give to not provide documents to somebody who is asking for them under subpoena. One, confidential materials, criminal history, law enforcement investigative information, law enforcement techniques, evidence, 
executive privilege, confidential informant, order of the court, or other agency records. Those are the nine conditions in which a law enforcement agency may try to exempt giving information to a party under subpoena in court. Now, what they do is they take all of this information and everything that's been asked for, and they create what's called a privilege log. Now, a privilege log is simply literally a listing of every single piece of evidence that they have and what they think they will give to the center of investigative reporting, in this case, the subpoenaing party, what they'll give to those people versus what they will keep and what they're not going to give to them. And they state their reason for not wanting to give them. They assert a privilege is what it's called. And in this particular case, as was with the Biggie Smalls case, there were thousands of documents that they asserted privilege on and they didn't want to give to the people that were asking for them. Now, what happens is that's not the end of the story. What happens is then that list is filed in court and the judge goes through that list one by one, if you can imagine the Wallace case, how many thousands of pages of documents there were. The, the Tupac case wasn't unlike that. There was, I think, five binders of, of documents. But the interesting thing about it is that the judge goes through each and every single one of those documents that they've asserted privilege on and makes an independent ruling on it. And they say, okay, yep, yeah, we agree. They don't need that document because it might frustrate the investigation or it's evidence or it's confidential informant information. Whatever those nine reasons, the judge either agrees with it and says, yep, you can keep it because of that exemption. Or the judge says, nah, I don't agree. Or they hold a hearing on it. And then the judge makes a decision and says, okay, you either got to give it or, or you can hold on to it. But at any rate, the police department that asserts the privilege has to specify what the piece of evidence is, what the document is, whether or not it's a, an interview tape or a recording or a document or whatever other piece of evidence they have. And they have to specify what that is. Okay, And, and they have in these case of Las Vegas police, they have binders. And I'm looking at binder number five that they've identified. And each binder apparently has tabs in it. And each tab, boy, they're really organized, has a specific um, group of information in it. So, for example, tab 25 of binder five has the interview, the audio tapes, the interview with Suge Knight, Frank Alexander, Katari Cox, Malcolm Greenwich. Yafu Fula, Barbara Davis, Gregory Johnson, Davion Brooks. It has all of those audio taped interviews, not the documents, but the actual tapes themselves. That's in tab 25 of the binder. That's where that maybe the transcripts of those interviews are located. Now, interesting enough, like I said before earlier in the show, uh, it's strange to me that uh, Reggie Wright his name was never one of the interviews that was done, even though in one way or another, he was material to the events of the night. Frank Alexander mentioned him. Suge Knight mentioned him. Uh, other people mentioned him, and he was the head of security for the record company. And so I would thought that at one point or another in the investigation, somebody would have interviewed Reggie Wright. Vegas police has never interviewed Reggie Wright, and that sticks out like a sore thumb to me. Uh, that's as serious as they, I think the legislator said the other day. That's as serious as four heart attacks and a stroke, okay, that that has not been done. At least I haven't seen that. I have to keep going through the files and look, so I, it doesn't look like they have. Anyway, 
We move from tab 25 of binder 5 to tab 26 and what's very interesting here and the reason that what's not included is just as important as what is included is something that I had never seen before that's never been mentioned before uh, in any documentary, in any film, anything at all. I've never heard it in 20 years and you are getting it absolutely fresh here. Tab 26 of the LVMPD privilege log for binder 5 in case A773883 says that there is a fax between Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and a hospital called Sunrise Hospital. Okay, now that is not to be confused with University Hospital, University Medical Center, where Suge Knight and Tupac were taken for treatment and where you see all the footage and all of that. That's University Medical Center. This is a different hospital. It's called Sunrise Hospital. And why was there a fax between Vegas Police Department and Sunrise Hospital? You hear it first here, RJ Bond, what I know. It states, and I quote, Correspondence between LVMPD and Sunrise Hospital for Orlando Anderson's medical records. Okay, guys, I'm reading it again. Fax between LVMPD and Sunrise Hospital the information contained is correspondence between LVMPD and Sunrise Hospital for Orlando Anderson's medical records. Now, did you know that Orlando Anderson even went to Sunrise Hospital? I didn't. I'm not sure that anybody did. But it's true, apparently, because LVMPD faxed out information about it, about his medical records that... Apparently, they knew he went there because they didn't ask for the medical records from any other hospital. They asked for the medical records from Sunrise Hospital. And of course, why would you ask for medical records from Sunrise Hospital for Orlando Anderson? We know that Orlando Anderson did not live in Las Vegas. He lived in Compton. So in Las Vegas, Orlando Anderson went to Sunrise Hospital. Now, why would Orlando Anderson go to Sunrise Hospital? Well, it doesn't take too big of a of a genius to figure that it probably had something to do with the beating that he got at the MGM Grand earlier that evening. Okay, now no one outside of the Vegas Police Department has ever disclosed or reported or stated in a statement that Orlando Anderson went to the hospital. Well, to me, this opens up a whole new can of worms that has never been seen and maybe again, and as I've said in season two of the show, Maybe this is something that Vegas police has been holding on to. And I told you, this is what I know, that Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department has much more information that they are not telling people than what they actually have let leak out or what reporters have said they said. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department has a lot of information in there. And it's information that could probably be a big game changer in the case. And it may have everything to do with why when Orlando Anderson was approached by Compton PD and they handed him over to Vegas police to be arrested for the murder of Tupac Shakur, Vegas police did not do it. They didn't do it. And the reason that they didn't do it may have something to do with the evidence that was collected. And the evidence that was collected may have something to do with correspondence between Vegas Police Department and Sunrise Hospital for Orlando Anderson's medical records. And so I ask you, the audience, to give me the feedback. RJ Bond, what I know at Outlook.com. If Orlando Anderson was in the hospital, the question becomes, when did he go to the hospital? 
because one of two conditions exists. Either he went to the hospital, the way I see it, if he went to the hospital right after the beating or after he left the bar, Corey Edwards said he was at the bar and he wasn't feeling good, you know, he could have gone back to his hotel room, started coughing up blood, whatever the case might be. If you have broken ribs, sometimes in the heat of the moment for a little while afterwards, maybe you don't feel the injury. Or maybe he thought he could muscle through it and then changed his mind. But if Orlando Anderson was at the hospital at any point in the evening up to that shooting, it completely frustrates any timeline that involves Orlando Anderson being involved in the shooting. It's an immediate alibi. Because you know when you go to the emergency room at the hospital, you check in, forget about it being a fight night, forget about it being crowded in Las Vegas. Let's just take a night where there's nobody in the emergency room. <coughs> Anybody who's been to the emergency room knows you're in that emergency room for a minimum of two hours. And if he was in that emergency room for two hours and during any part of that evening between the beating and the shooting, that immediately excludes him as being a suspect in the case. He didn't check himself out of the hospital, get in the Cadillac and go shoot somebody, okay? That's usually not how it works. The other alternative is that Orlando Anderson went to the hospital at some time later because he went back to California. He left and went back to California. We have that documented. It happened like the next day, he went back to LA. So if he went to the hospital after the shooting, okay, let's just put it out there, you want to say he did it? Okay, let's say that he went after the shooting. If he went after the shooting, perhaps, and the question needs to be asked, were his injuries so severe because he had to go to the hospital that he was um, too hurt to actually have done the shooting? Is it possible that he may have been incapacitated, that he may have been so hurt by the beating that it was physically difficult if not impossible for him to do the acts that they, he's been accused by Contempidi and others of doing. Whatever information is in these medical records, and I have no idea how we can get it, maybe one of you out there is a super sleuth and can figure out how we can get that information from Sunrise Hospital or get it out there, find out why he went to the hospital. Okay, I guess another outlier, and this would really be an outlier, is if, uh, you know, the people that say that somebody shot back at the Cadillac, did he get shot? Did Orlando Anderson get shot if somebody shot back to the Cadillac? Did Orlando Anderson get shot or return fire? Well, I don't know. But that could, I guess that could be just as possible as anything else. But I don't believe it. And I'm not trying to be dismissive about it. It just, there's, there is no substantiating information from third-party eyewitnesses that anybody returned fire, that there was any shooting at that, at that Cadillac as it left, that nobody shot at the Cadillac, okay? Uh, no independent witness has ever corroborated that. So we just kind of put it out there and say that it's just not a thing. Back to the two reasons. Either Orlando Anderson was at the hospital during the time between the shooting and the beating, or Orlando Anderson went to the hospital shortly after that uh, for his injuries, which opens up the possibility that he may not have been physically capable of doing the acts. Now, the third possibility is, well, was he all banged up and then he muscled through it and did the shooting and then went to the hospital? Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, I think that that's probably the lesser, and I'm not trying to say it because I'm biased in way of thinking. I don't want this to sound like it's coming off as some sort of a uh, confirmation bias thing. 
Uh, but I do believe that it does need to be examined that whatever information that Vegas police has about Orlando Anderson going to the hospital, that is new information. That is information that no one has seen or heard from before. Um, I, nobody knew uh, that that was even a factor, but apparently it was because they not only learned of it, but they made a request for his medical records. And apparently the reason that they want to withhold it is because there's personal information in those medical records that came back from Sunrise Hospital. If there was no medical records, if there was no information in there and that was a dead end and they said there was no information, Vegas police wouldn't care about whether or not that information was released uh, at all. They wouldn't care. The, the reason that they want to hold on to it, again, is because I think it has probative value. I think it's got value and it may establish Orlando Anderson as an alibi, either being at the hospital during that time or at afterwards going to the hospital but being so injured from the beating. You saw the kicks that he got. I mean, he got a couple of good ones in there. They got a couple of good ones in there with the guy. Could have broken a couple of ribs easily. That if it was so that perhaps he was too laid up to have done the events that they accused him of doing. So at any rate, that's what is uh, news. And again, like I try to tell you guys that we try to get the information out there when we can about it. More will come as things develop. Stay tuned. Yeah, so big homie Macadosis. Send us out to my nigga Tupac. Tupac. A.K.A. Machiavelli. Yeah. What's up, my rest in peace. You know we ain't forgot about you. Rest in peace, my nigga. Shit don't stop till the casket drop. Yeah. Yeah. Greatest time of my life Me and my baby brother A duo like none other Equal ambition But love for each other Thug life I know you remember You suckers Mad hit records And all must respect it At his house Full of women And all was butt naked Now they ain't just stories The rumors true And those to bear witness Was a chosen few Warren G Dog pound Oh what it do Old dog house Wildin' out with blunts And brew There won't none like us In that period in time L.A. opened its arms At pop reply Put the city on its back And began to ride The day my soul died I remember it well It was Las Vegas Nevada Flamingo with cold fat Flamingo with cold fat Flamingo with cold fat Flamingo with cold fat Your big homie Macadocious It's gonna send a kite and let you know you still a locust Everybody miss you and niggas still bang your music But since they're ordering all that new shit that they doing Ain't nobody saying shit, it all sound weak That shit so whack and make a speedhead go to sleep Niggas know they shit is whack so they try to fix it They come back out with your voice so they remixes Cause that's the only way them niggas will ever get they props Say they did a song with Pac so they shit don't flop Said don't be a punk homie, keep your head up And don't be scared to fight nigga, let's go ahead up. Put the thug in them niggas, made them want to ride You gave us pride, that's why I cried when they said you died You was the realest, with every word you made us feel it And there would never be another that could touch your spirit Rest in peace, Pac I love you, homie I love you, homie. I love you. Yeah.
keep my mind on my money, money on my mind. Finger on the trigger and I'm still on the grind. It's a gangster party in this thug life. Dear mama, I'm addicted to this thug life. And if you speak on this thug, you gon' get it twice. Who I'm talking about? Here's Pac's life. I remember I was broken, wasn't given a chance. My definition of a thug made him dance. He was the first motherfucker to give me a chance when I was with Death Row. Went out in advance, thanks to Pac. Now I rock block to block. It's me against the world, and it don't stop. Hey, I say Diddy Daddy Day. All you suckin' MC, won't you please come out to play? Hey, I say Diddy Daddy Day. This is how we do it in the thug life, man. Starving, busted, disgusted, couldn't be trusted. You know what I'm saying? The homeboy called me, what, about maybe 10 at night? He was like, Warren, you got a beat? I was like, what's up, Pac? He was like, man, you did that endo smoke? I said, yeah. He said, man, I need to get that. You know, so uh, I packed up my little bag, my drum machine, my turntable and mixer. I got on the freeway, got up to the studio. The nigga was in there chilling. You know, real nigga when I came in there, smoking, doing his thug dizzle. I dropped the track, did a couple of cuts. My definition of a thug nigga came about. That was real shit with the homeboy Pac. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got the dog. Yeah, boy. Yeah, Warren, that's right. Definition of a thug nigga. That was doing poetic justice, you know. I was like his assistant back then And Pac came to me and said Yo, I need something I need something for For the soundtrack You know I ain't paying no attention to him I knew he was going to get it together But later on He came to me and said Nigga, I got a beat for Warren G, nigga I got a beat for Warren G, nigga Yeah, boy It was the good old days T.I.P. Thug of Peace Machiavelli the Don Yaki Gaddafi Big Stretch just recently, Big Crazy, you know what we do, how we do. We forever live on in our hearts and minds. Westside. going to talk a little bit about uh, a woman by the name of Lamika Early. Uh, she is a woman that lives in Chicago. Uh, she is the niece of Frank's, Frank Alexander, who was Tupac's former bodyguard. And uh, she's come out uh, with the uh, hack YouTube channel called Art of Dialogue. Uh, it is a hack. Uh, they're kind of a shill for... Um, I want to say um, Vlad, I believe it is, Vlad TV. Uh, Art of Dialogue is a, is a shill off that, and rumor has it that 
Uh, when you get something on Art of Dialogue, if it gets enough views, then Vlad picks it up and runs with it. So they're all from that same ilk, which means that they do zero fact-checking, zero uh, credibility, and they'll just put anything out. And I have my own reasons to believe what they're doing and why they're doing it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But a little background. Um, back in 1996, Frank Alexander was Tupac's bodyguard, and Frank was doing a lot of work. Uh, with Pac in, in, around when Pac was doing many different things, and not only in the recording studio, but other things that Pac was doing as well. And Pac was always very civically minded and uh, really had a thing for uh, helping kids of, of lower privilege and, and uh, uh, lower socioeconomic status. And, uh, you know, was always trying to help. Joshua's Dream was a, uh, a charitable organization that he wanted to start to uh, help out uh, disadvantaged kids. And it was always something that was close to his heart, close to his mind. Well, apparently, um, Lamika Early, who is a disabled, uh, woman, she, uh, has a wheelchair. Uh, she was in an accident and lost the use of her legs, uh, very early on as, as a, as a young girl, um, was hooked up through the Make-A-Wish Foundation to be a, uh, recipient of a wish as a disabled person. Uh, and that's very interesting because Make-A-Wish Foundation generally doesn't deal with people that have existing disabilities. Most of what Make-A-Wish does and what they're most known for are terminal cases where children have terminal illnesses and are not expected to live. And Make-A-Wish does those um, type of, of literally wish granting because it's kind of a dying wish type of thing. They try to make uh, the person's life, the child's life on earth, just a little bit better by allowing them to fulfill a dream that they've had in the short term that they, they have left. So it, it's interesting. I've, I've not known the Make-A-Wish Foundation to do a lot of uh, non-terminal uh, cases, but okay, so, so they did. Uh, and if it wasn't Make-A-Wish Foundation, it was an organization similar to Make-A-Wish Foundation. At any rate, um, this Lamika had hooked up through this foundation and they had apparently booked a um, meeting with, between her and Janet Jackson for the uh, purposes of her wish was to meet Janet Jackson, uh, who was arguably back in the 96, next to Tupac, one of the most famous celebrities out there, certainly. Um, and that was all put in play and everything was supposed to be uh, organized and put together. Well, as the story has it, in the 11th hour, Janet Jackson bailed. Uh, we don't know the reasons why. We don't know if it was just a scheduling conflict or, you know, I, I hate to say she just bailed herself. It's kind of the way it's been characterized. But to be honest with you, I think that, uh, you know, there was probably a scheduling snafu. Uh, that's usually what happens with people that have uh, celebrity type of careers. And that's okay. But at any rate... Um, Jackson uh, wasn't able to make the uh, appointment, make the commitment. Now, from what I'm to understand, I think airline tickets had been bought, and I think that it was actually that far down the line that commitments had been made about it. And of course, um, Lamika called Frank, who was her uncle at the time, and uh, asked if, you know, I guess told him her, her tale of, of the fact that Jackson wouldn't do it. And Frank approached Tupac about it. And Tupac had a kind of dicey relationship with Janet Jackson at that time. I don't think he held her in the greatest of regard, uh, especially after the uh, alleged um, uh, AIDS test that Janet Jackson said to have wanted Tupac to take. 
before they did any kissing scenes in Poetic Justice. Um, you know, we don't know if that's true or not. That's kind of legend, and that is what it is. But uh, Pac didn't have a whole a very high opinion of Janet Jackson, and so the fact that Janet Jackson canceled uh, was kind of an opportunity for Pac to, uh, you know, do something that Janet Jackson wouldn't do. Uh, but more importantly, he did it for Frank because Frank and Tupac were friends at the time. And uh, when he heard that Janet Jackson had canceled out, he said to Frank, hey, why don't you bring him out and uh, they can just hang out, uh, hang out with me. Well, you know, Pac at the time was arguably one of the biggest stars in the hip-hop community. So, you know, that's certainly not a, a door prize. It's certainly not a second uh, prize for somebody to uh, uh, actually uh, meet Tupac. So, uh, apparently, and I don't know how the airfare was arranged. I don't know any of the details about who paid for it. Normally, Make-A-Wish Foundation pays for all of that, including the family. So, I'm, I don't know how that all went down. But somehow, Lamika and her family, uh, other people, I think her, her mother was there, uh, which would have been Frank's sister, um, Junius de Dutch. He was there as, as well. I think he was like eight or nine at the time uh, when when uh, he met Tupac. And um, they went there and they met Tupac at the recording studio the day of the time that she was supposed to meet Tupac. And uh, Tupac was recording. And that is the genesis of the infamous Frankie Goes to Hollywood uh videotape that that I have uh, copyright and rights to uh, and it's been in my movie it's been in Before I Wake it's been in Biggie and Tupac it's been in a whole ton of different movies this footage uh, the story is that there were actually supposed to be two cameras covering the event Frank had a camera and was recording it and uh, Lori his wife at the time had another camera and she can actually be seen in the video holding the video camera but Lori was kind of starstruck about the whole thing with Tupac. And as the story goes, she forgot to press the record button on it. So she aimed the camera, filmed the camera. They would add two angles of everything. But uh, unfortunately, we got the one. And thank goodness that Frank remembered to push record because that was what they did. And if you'll notice, most of the video is actually not about Lamika. She's in there and certainly doing the... Uh, in the recording studio, Pac let her do a, a track on or record a, uh, a vocal on one of his uh, tracks there for fun, put her in the recording booth and gave her kind of star for the day treatment. But if you notice that most of that video, and it's important to understand this, most of that video isn't about Lamika. Most of that video is Tupac talking to Frank. He's playing for the camera and Frank's holding the camera. The whole Frankie goes to Hollywood and what does your family call you? Big Frank. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Uh, later on about the whole thing about two egg rolls with hot sauce, that uh, tattoo that one of the engineers had that Tupac was talking about. And, uh, you know, in addition to just him being filmed going about his business at the studio, most of the conversation that was happening was between Frank and Tupac. And Tupac did spend some time with Tamika. He went over, and as the video shows, went over and had some conversation with her and brought her in. But for the most part, they kind of sat on the sidelines and just watched the work happen. Tupac was actually in an active recording session at the time. And um, I think he was doing My Only Fear of Death is Reincarnation. I think that's what, what he was working on at the time. And he had her do a verse in it, just put the beat down and had her do a little verse in it. And, you know, the video kind of speaks for itself. But for the most part, and the video shows this, that 
yeah, they were meeting some people. Snoop brought his dog and they met Snoop. But a lot of what was happening then was going on on the side. It wasn't necessarily in the video. And it was certainly not shot by Lamika uh, by, by a long shot. And of course, as the video shows, she has perfectly good use of her hands or arms or neck or everything else but her legs. So if she wanted to shoot a video, she could have had the camera. She could have shot it herself, but she didn't. Frank shot it, and I think it was because Frank, as her uncle, was very proud of her and wanted to commemorate that occasion. Now... A couple of days ago, The Art of Dialogue came out with a uh, an article, and it's made a little bit of tr noise, a little bit of traction. Uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to fast news days when things actually fly by, and we don't have the um, slowness uh, that we used to have in the news cycle where things would hang out. You know, pretty much things come out, they hit, and then they're gone two days later. If the mass media doesn't pick it up and make a big storm about it, it fades away pretty quick. And, you know, even when they do make a big storm about it, it still fades away pretty quick because we're on such a fast news cycle now. It's news and it's gone in 24 hours for sure. So at any rate, the, the uh, Art of Dialogue somehow got in contact with Lamika. I don't know what the circumstances were. I could speculate about it. And I, you know, anybody who knows this podcast knows that we have no shortage of speculation about things. Um, try to figure out what happened there and how they made contact with each other and he'll probably never tell the truth about it uh, art of dialogue uh, he'll probably never tell the truth about how it happened but at any rate they uh, got her on the phone and they had a conversation with her and she now makes the claim that frank alexander profited off her personal photos and videos from the time she met and spent time with tupac shakur in 1996 uh, she also states that she can't understand how Tupac passed away when he was talking in the hospital after being shot on the Vegas Strip. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me continue. In this exclusive interview, Lamika couldn't understand what Tupac passed away. She said, when he was in the hospital, my knowledge was he was going to, he was talking, so I don't understand how that turned into a death. That's a quote from her, okay? Now, Lamika was not at the hospital. She wasn't personally there. She had no personal contact with Tupac after he had been shot. So how in the world she would even know this uh, or treat this as fact, of course, that kind of gives you the characterization of, of what we're dealing with here. Uh, she said, I, I didn't think that Tupac was actually going to die. This is Pac. You know, he, he already got shot before. He's going to be aight. He's talking and shit and like, good, you know what I'm saying. This is her, this is her quote. Lamika was under the impression that she was going to be a part, according to the O4L online network. Lamika was under the impression she was going to be a part of something that was going to showcase Tupac Shakur's generosity towards her. Thinking her and her uncle Frank Alexander were on the same page, but instead Lamika was not included in any future books or documentaries that were put out by Uncle Frank. This is her position. According to Lamika, one year before becoming Tupac's bodyguard, Frank Alexander was uh, confirmed that, oh, I'm sorry, one year before becoming Tupac's bodyguard, Frank's niece was left paralyzed from the waist down. She would be confined to a wheelchair after being involved in a car accident. According to Lamika, Frank took her photos and videos of Shakur and didn't give her not even a dime in return, even after the books and documentaries were made. Quote, I could have done this myself, quote, Lamika said, quote, I didn't know the value of what I had at the time and I, when I did give it to him. 
Lamika claims that Shakur and Frank's relationship was not as her uncle painted in his book, nor was the relationship between herself and Frank. According to Lamika, Frank Alexander never reached out to her after Shakur passed away on September 13, 1996. You was quick to be all in my face and stuff until you got it. And after you get the stuff that you needed, nobody really heard from you anymore, according to Lamika during her interview with The Art of Dialogue. Okay. Well, there's a few things that I can say personally about this, and this is obviously called R.J. Bond, What I Know. Well, what I know is that's a bunch of horseshit. It's a lie. Lamika Early is a liar. And not only is she a liar, she's a damn liar because she's putting out information about somebody that's dead. Uh, and that's sad to me because um, not only does she have her facts wrong, but she's got the facts wrong uh, even after the event. Because like I said, I laid out the whole uh, incident regarding the videotape and taping of, of Tupac and that. Now, I do know that Frank gave Lamika, I personally know this, that Frank gave Lamika a copy of the video that he shot. Uh, I have the original master, the digital master of that uh, uh, video uh, because he took it, he transferred it to digital and that was the end of it. She has probably a VHS copy or some other low res copy of, of that footage. I mean, we're only talking about 20 minutes worth of footage. It wasn't the, you know, a whole day with Tupac kind of thing. And, and the pictures as well. And Frank took those pictures. I mean, you can't obviously take pictures yourself. And, and there were many pictures of Tupac that were taken that actually weren't, Lamika wasn't a part of it at all. But at any rate, and this is something that uh, Len, uh, that uh, Junius de Dutch and other people that are involved with Lamika um, have also called out as an out and out lie. And I hopefully will get Junius to be able to uh, jump on a phone call uh, with us for the next podcast and, and have him speak on this matter directly because he was there as well. Well, A, Frank Alexander owned that videotape. That is undisputed and uh, and no one can, can claim that. It was his video camera. He shot the, shot the video. Lori had a camera. She shot the video. It wasn't as if Lamika put everybody up to doing it. And certainly Lamika's mother, Frank's uh, sister, didn't have a video camera. None of them had a video camera. That footage and the pictures that were taken were of Frank. And Frank, as a proud uncle, took those pictures. Okay, number one. Number two, I actually know for a fact she claims that Frank did not contact her and Frank had nothing to do with her and basically ghosted her uh, from after the Tupac shooting, which is a bunch of horse shit. Um, I possess, okay, a little bit of background. Um, in 2008, as a favor to Frank and in conversation with uh, Junius de Dutch, I went up there and I shot two music videos for him. One was for a video called Crooked, and the other one was for a video called The Reckoning. And that was what we were using for our uh, title of our second Tupac assassination movie, Reckoning. For all of you who have seen it, thank you. For all of you who have not seen Tupac Assassination 2 Reckoning, please go out and get it. Uh, we did this uh, video. I went to Chicago and um, stayed in Chicago while we shot the videos. Lamika herself, and I have the video to prove it, she's sitting right in front of my car, was in these music videos with Junius de Dutch, okay? It was all set up by Frank. Frank was in communication. Frank knew what was going on. Um, he was in constant contact with Lamika. Lamika showed up at Frank's funeral and said that she was his favorite niece. 
I have the video of it. I have her at Frank's funeral. If this was a woman who was ghosted by Frank and has such a low opinion of Frank, she wouldn't have gone to Frank's funeral because it's out in California unless she was just wanting to use Frank to get a free trip out to California, which I'm not saying may not be the case. But at any rate, I can tell you from personal firsthand knowledge that the claims that she makes in this in this art of dialogue interview are complete lies and fabrications. And it's an insult to me and it's an insult to Frank to put this out. But enough people have actually uh, said something about it that I felt it was really important to talk about. You know, Frank Alexander, it's easy to take shots at people after they're dead. That's for sure. Uh, but to make these kind of outrageous allegations uh, that she knows is a lie, everybody involved knows is a lie, um, I don't understand why this was put out. The only reason that I could think maybe that, that she did any of this at all was as a publicity stunt. Uh, maybe she needed some money. I don't know. Uh, maybe she got paid by Art of Dialogue. I don't know. Art of Dialogue is known as a person that creates dissension and strife and likes to thrive on controversy. That whole channel is about that. And they make statements that are just completely false and do no fact checking. But that's not unusual in today's media age. Nobody seems to fact check anymore. Uh, nobody bothered to get any other side of the story. And of course, the reason behind it, in my personal point of view, is that Art of Dialogue and others are mining, looking for Tupac footage, Tupac pictures, something that they can use to exploit Tupac and to get views on their YouTube channel. So if they do that and they put that information out there uh, to get those views, uh, they're looking for things to support that, like pictures, video, unseen video with Tupac. So the ability to use that footage, and most, I think, all of it's been out in one way or another at this point. Maybe there's some footage, a few minutes of the footage of Frank's that hasn't been out. But at any rate, the, um, the footage that's out there is uh, uh, clearly owned and protected by copyright. Uh, I have a federal court order. I'm sorry, it's a state court order, not federal. I have a state court order. It's case number RIC 1407138, if you want to look it up. And it gives me the ability to use that footage and to control that footage that was used in the movie before I week and the supporting videos. And that would include those. So I can speak to this. And the reason I believe that Art of Dialogue used Lamika to begin with, and maybe they paid her, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But I believe that it's possible that they just needed some extra Tupac footage and that gold mine is actually getting mined out pretty quick. Not a lot of footage left, not a lot of pictures left. So to be able to recycle that and basically avoid a YouTube copyright strike by me or somebody else, uh, they got her to make a claim that she owns the footage. Well, just that claim is enough for YouTube to withstand a copyright strike so I can't get those taken down even though I might control it the only option I have is file a copyright strike they file what's called a counter strike back with YouTube and then YouTube says well you guys are uh, clearly have a controversy we're not taking it down and you have to go to court and you have to sue them under copyright law to get it taken down. When you win the copyright judgment, then we'll go ahead and we'll take it down. That's kind of how this all goes with YouTube now, uh, you know, when they're very selective about what they pull down and what they don't. It used to be that way, but so many people have made false copyright claims that uh, it gives you an opportunity to respond back. So, 
Art of Dialogue wanted some video, in my opinion. Uh, they wanted to be able to put it out there without getting a copyright strike or without getting me pissed off, which I kind of am at this point. Uh, they wanted to get it out there and rip it off, uh, quote unquote, legally rip it off. Uh, it's still illegal what they're doing. They have no business and no right to exploit that footage at all. Uh, they're not the copyright owners, nor have they asked the copyright owners. But because she had copies of those things, technically she has a copy of them. And they used that as a reason to put out Tupac footage, which you as fans will go to and look at and say, oh, that's really cool. So I think that was the whole mode, uh, the whole um, uh I think that was the whole reason they did it in the first place. That was their modus operandi. And uh, I think it's a bunch of horse shit. Uh, I think what they're doing is a bunch of horse shit. I don't have any respect for them. Of course, I didn't anyway. When you've got Vlad running around, I think I used maybe 10, 15 seconds of one of his interviews in a documentary. And he threatened to sue me over that. And yet, we've got Art of Dialogue over here taking whole videos and pictures and everything else and using them. And, and I guess they don't expect that they're going to get sued over anything like that. But again, it's, it is worth the time. Not necessarily, but I definitely wanted to address the issues that everybody knows are false. Uh, I was shocked at how many people caught on to the bullshit 24 years later. Uh, somebody's making these kind of outrageous claims. But, you know, like I said, maybe there was money involved or maybe she just felt like she didn't have enough attention in her life and needed that extra drama brought into it. But that's what I have to say about that. It's a bunch of crap and we'll just leave it at that. Shit, my B got blueprints. Plus the club moving like. 
like starving students. So I slide up politely, excuse me, sister. Mind if I holler at this bitch that's with ya? Slide with ya, boy, if you like adventure. And don't mind dick all up in your denture. Mun B got enough drink to trench ya. Tie your ass up like Coop to Kenta. Shout, then we get kicked out to Slaquinta. Wood good, get stuck, nickname Splinter. Then quick, quick, I'm stiff as a mannequin. Then flick, 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 I'm a hell of a cameraman. Sex in the studio to you, foundation. Is you fucking with it? I hate it. I wanna know. Like a cool classic, girl, your body that's sick. Untwist your top, wanna take a little sip. Satisfy my thirst till I'm quenched. Then you see something, same color as Sierra Mist. Straight animal style, let's get wild with it. Tiger scratches and monkey bites when I hit it. Completed mission, two hours exact. Screaming louder than Venus Williams in a tennis match. <laughs> Hitting high notes, break the windows out. Make the neighbors think we fucking in the same house. Flow to the couch, shower to the bed. The least to your favorite positions, I get it in. So tell a friend I taste like him and nails. King size, so it's a Enough for all of them. Let's make it a tandem. We can act up. Get your breast rubbed and all of your cheeks smacked up. next thing that I wanted to talk about, though, is um, the recent comments by old Reginald Wright. Reggie Wright Jr. is showing up from his prison in uh, uh, I, I, middle California somewhere. I don't know where he's at. But uh, old Reggie Wright Jr. has decided to surface again. And, of course, somebody for somebody being in prison, apparently he's got a lot of privileges. And he can just jump on Skype whenever he wants to or jump on a phone call whenever he wants to uh, and uh, contribute to websites and contribute to... Uh, the conversation. I think he even called into a podcast at one time. And apparently he's done with the Gangster Chronicles podcast. I guess he wants to go out on his own because he's a celebrity and thinks that he can do better than that. Uh, personally, I think it's a mistake. Alex Alonzo, for whatever disagreements he and I may have had in the past, I think Alex Alonzo is the draw for the Gangster Chronicles. And I think he has a much better shot with, even without Reggie Wright Jr., I think he could probably go on and do a good show. So, uh, whatever becomes of that, you know, I could really give a shit, but uh, ultimately that's what I've heard. What I am here to talk about, though, is a claim that Reggie Wright Jr. has made recently, and I guess to, as the feedback I'm getting is to try to discredit me somehow, and uh, okay, the racist card thing didn't work, so we're going to try to discredit RJ again. Now, 
Um, Reggie Wright Jr. has made a claim that uh, I approached him and we talked about doing a documentary with Reggie Wright Jr. and that I wanted to do a documentary with Reggie Wright Jr. And apparently somehow this is meant to signal that I softened my position with Reggie Wright Jr. and that we were buddies and friends and pals and that I had forgiven him and that I'm a hypocrite somehow, I guess. I, I, I'm not really sure what the rationale is for it, but I'll just put it out there. Uh, that he made a claim that I wanted to do a documentary with him uh, regarding uh, the Tupac case. And uh, that shows that I was somehow friendly with him. And the fact check on that is absolutely true. Fact check true. I did approach Reggie Wright Jr. about doing a documentary. And I will talk to you about this and tell you why. Uh, I had had a conversation with Randall Sullivan right after I had finished Tupac Assassination Battle for Compton, and Reggie Wright Jr. started making a lot of noise about doing podcasts and doing things up. It's something like he woke up after 20 years and decided he wanted to defend his side of the story or tell his side of the story. And um, I talked with Randall Sullivan, who is a, I hope to get on the show here this season, uh, who's a friend and a writer of a couple of books, Labyrinth and Dead Wrong, which were both about the Biggie killings. And, uh, you know, he's written for Rolling Stone magazine and, and a very published writer, which I am not. I wrote, I've done all kinds of writing, but not to the degree Randall Sullivan has. So one day Randall and I were talking and I asked him about whether or not it was ethical as a journalist to say that you're fair minded and that you're objective about something and do a piece like Battle for Compton or like Tupac 187 or like the assassination movies where Reggie Wright Jr. is named as a person of interest in these cases and our opinion and our speculation is to his involvement in the shooting and death of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls uh, and uh, to which we never really got Reggie's side of the story. Now, Reggie, for the longest time, was silent on the matter and did very few interviews about it. And um, probably in the last four or five years, suddenly just sprang to life and started doing interviews with anybody who would ask him to do an interview. Uh, up until that time, he hadn't done any interviews probably since 2007 or so, uh, where he said he was going to sue me and sue the Nextel Corporation over the Nextel phones, the Sprint phones, and uh, you know various other, other claims and things like that. So he uh, hadn't done a lot of interviews. Well, he sprang up all over the place and started doing interviews and he did the Fox interview and he realized he didn't come off very well in that Fox interview. And I talked to Randall Sullivan about it and Randall Sullivan said, hey, quite honestly, if you've never taken this side of the story, think about even in a murder investigation, the prime suspect gets arrested and brought in and interrogated. Um, they are going to listen to what that person has to say. And in Randall's opinion, you really can't say that you're an objective journalist or a journalist of any ethics if you don't get both sides of the story or at least try to get both sides of the story. And that's why you see all the time in, in articles and stuff that we reached out to so-and-so and they had no comment or we reached out to so-and-so and they were unavailable for comment or we, tried, we couldn't reach so-and-so. It's because you have to make at least something of an effort to be able to get both sides of the story and if you want to put them out, that's fine. A lot of people put them out and spin it. But at any rate, it, it's an ethical thing to do. And I had realized that over the last 
many years that I'd been doing these documentaries that I had been, and largely because of Frank's involvement, been doing them from a kind of one-sided point of view and that the, the documentaries were really about what I believed, what Frank believed, what those on that side of the fence believed, but I never really ever gave Reggie Wright an opportunity as he had made a claim many times to present his side of the story. And unfortunately, uh, you know, and sadly, he is turned around and again, like I said, tried to use this uh, against me. We had a discussion about doing a documentary. I met with Reggie Wright at a Denny's restaurant to try to get his side of the story. And I listened to many things that he said. Um, again, people can come together and discuss things and not agree on them. Okay, that's just part of civility. That's part of being a civil human being is that a person has an opportunity. He wanted a listening ear. I gave him a listening ear. We talked about things. There were some uh, details of things that he told me that I didn't know about that are actually good information. He filled in a couple of blanks on some things that I had uh, wondered about uh, in the background and was generally pretty forthcoming about things. Now, whether he was telling the truth is a different story. Whether or not he was forthcoming is different. I mean, forthcoming means that you can talk to somebody and that you're happy to put information out there, uh, whether or not it's true or whether or not it's bullshit. You know, it's very important for Reggie Wright to convince me that I'm wrong. It's very important for Reggie Wright to convince everybody that I'm wrong or that he's wrong or that the assassination movies are wrong in terms of uh, what, what the conclusions we came up with. It's very important for him to do that. So, of course, he's going to do whatever he can to try to convince you, sway you. Uh, and if you don't like what he's saying, he goes after your family, he insults you, he insults your family, uh, he insults everybody that is around um, you know, uh, and, and tries to demean you, calls you names, and a bunch of other just, you know, childish tactics there. But the reality is, is that I felt strongly that if I was going to keep putting out information about it and he was willing to put it out, I didn't want him to be able to say that I had never, ever stopped to consider his point of view. So, okay, fine. So let's set it up. So we set it up, we met, and we did it. And through that discussion, one of the things that he had talked about was his latest conviction of the being the leader of a drug, uh, interstate drug trafficking ring and money laundering uh, operation, and uh, which he's tried to minimize, but uh, the court in the recent uh, ruling against him when he tried to get out of jail early said that he was actually a leader of that drug money laundering ring, the interstate ring. He was one of the leaders. Doesn't say that he did it just because he had no other choice. But that's what he told me. He told me that the only reason that he was doing the drug dealing was, oh, it was only a little bit of drugs and I was doing that because I don't have a job and I need to feed my family. I don't have any other way to make a living. If that doesn't sound to me like a gang or a uh, inner city kind of... Um, drug dealer, low-level drug dealer conversation. Oh, I was doing it to feed my family. You know, that's kind of their go-to when they get asked about why. Well, I can't do anything else and there's no jobs, so I gotta do drugs and I gotta feed my family. Okay, I'm not taking that away from them. That's a decision they made, probably not a wise one, but if that's how they gotta feed their family, I guess that's a decision they made. Well, he made that and he laid that all out that that was what his whole thing was. Oh, well, I had to do the drug dealing because I couldn't get a job. I don't have a regular job. And God knows why he doesn't have a regular job. I mean, you know, Denny's is hiring. I mean, they had a big sign right on the door and he walked in and it's hiring. You know, so you can get a job, but he just decided he'd rather deal drugs than to work. 
Well, one of the things I said, and I was trying to feel kind of uh, sympathetic towards his plight in the fact that he wasn't working. Uh, I know Frank Alexander had a trouble getting a job from time to time, you know, um, because when you're a security guy or an ex-cop, you kind of have a limited amount of things that you can do with your skills. It's not like you can work on a car or something like that. Um, there are just certain occupations and certain professions that are very specific to one thing, and they don't have a lot of benefit or crossover ability to be able to go in and actually do something else with, uh, with your skill set. You can be a security guard, a loss prevention guy, um, you know, maybe an investigator, but there, I mean, there's just a few things you can do when you have a law enforcement background and you don't have any other skills like computer skills, or you can work on a car or you can work on a, you know, do something, make a widget, whatever. And so I felt kind of bad about the fact he was putting it out there like that. And one of the things I said to him was, I said, well, here's the deal. I feel like I at least, uh, owe it to you to hear your side of the story if you would like to put your story out there and you'd like to get a broader audience for your story, I think doing YouTube videos for free that reach a couple thousand people is not getting your side of the story out. And I feel that because I put videos out that have reached millions of people, that perhaps we should do something that would get your side of the story out and do that as well. Uh, you can also monetize your story because uh you know if you do a dvd and you're part of a dvd as a contributor you get paid as a contributor you get part of that money for the dvd and so that would help you earn some money for your family legitimately and you would be able to do that so we got together and he was you know happy about it he wanted to do it and then the whole court case thing got in the way and days became weeks and i had heard his story and i became less motivated to want to do it quite honestly because one of the things we had talked about was if you've got information and you want to put it in the public medium try to get your information out to the public medium in the broadest way possible but what you want to be careful of is that you don't try to do a documentary you don't try to do something and all the information you have in the documentary, you've already put out five different places in a YouTube video where 10 people have seen it. So I said, if you've got stories you want to tell or certain things you want to do that are different, and clearly he does because he says he wants to do a podcast, that he's got more story. I said, save them for the documentary. We'll put them in the documentary and you can do your side of the story and I will get on the documentary and it will be more of an examination about now that I've heard this guy's side of the story, does that change how I feel? Does that change the facts? Does that change how this all goes? I thought it could actually be a pretty damn compelling documentary, uh, honestly, uh, to, to put it out there that way, to see if anything that he had to say or any information he had to put out there uh, in a civil way would change any of the conclusions or any of the things that we had discussed in any of the material that had been put out over the last 10, 15 years prior to that. So I thought it would be a good documentary. Uh, at any rate, I, I you know, we talked about it. Uh, we had several phone calls about it. Uh, I called him and we had several conversations regarding the uh, information that was in the documentaries, what he wanted to correct, things he thought were important to correct in it. And so we talked about it. But over the course of time, as he got on to the um, Bomb First website and was a regular part of that, and not only was just giving out all the information that he wanted to give out to that audience, but he also engaged in a lot of childish behavior where he was 
taking things and calling people's family names and calling people racist like me and going out there and, and just doing some real childish things, I became less and less motivated because I'd heard his story. And quite frankly, none of what he had to say really moved the needle for me. I think it actually caused more questions than answers in terms of the information he was he was saying. And so at that point, we, you know, we talked, I think the last time I spoke with him was shortly before he went to prison. And, uh, you know, I actually wished him, you know, good luck in prison. Uh, again, you know, I try to keep things as civil as I can. Uh, you can't get any information out of somebody if you're just a complete ass to them and you treat them like shit. You're never going to get any information. And I've said for the longest time that, you know, Reggie Wright, the more Reggie Wright talks, the more I'm interested in hearing what he has to say, because his information one way or another is either going to be proven to be inaccurate or untrue, or it's going to be proven to be true. One way or another, the information he puts out is going to bring us that much closer to uh, whatever conclusion we're going to make on the Shakur shooting and the Biggie shooting. So uh, it's important. I, I think it's important. And I've said that all along. People have asked me, and people that have been close to me that I work with, asked if, uh, if I was okay with them doing an interview with Reggie Wright. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, get him talking. The more that Reggie Wright talks, the more that he has to say, the more definition and clarity we get to understanding the both cases. So, because he, whether or not you want to admit it, he was in the middle of it. I mean, regardless of whether or not you think he had or didn't have anything to do with it, he was in the middle of it. He is definitely a witness. And it still baffles me to this day why Vegas PD has never sat down and actually done an interview with Reggie Wright Jr. about any of the events that happened that night. Uh, I've been through the Las Vegas police uh, books and I don't see an interview that Vegas Metro did with Reggie Wright Jr. And that still baffles me uh, to this day. But go anyway. But I wanted to drop that out there because, again, telling you the circumstances about it and he's somehow trying to use this to discredit me, I, I really don't get it. I don't see how anything could discredit you if you're an objective journalist and you want to catch both sides of the story and you want to put out a documentary. Maybe he's uh, mad about the fact that or maybe he thinks it's some discredit to me that I want to put out a commercial documentary with his side of the story in it. Um, OK, well, if he wants to, you know, shoot people that want to put things out there to the same audience that other things will go out there and not put it out to a YouTube audience of 45 people like my live stream does, like I think 45, 50 people. It's not big. Um, you know, or his, even his 10,000 people. And that's the extent of the audience that he wants to talk to. That's his choice. But don't jam on somebody and don't disrespect somebody and don't say mean things about somebody because they wanted to give you a shot to be able to talk to a bigger audience. And, and by the way, and in the process, make some money for your family and your kids. Okay. So, you know, maybe you just prefer to do drug dealing. Maybe you prefer to do money laundering than make money legitimately, uh, because at least you can tell people that you weren't a culture vulture, that you just did a whole bunch of felonious acts and that you weren't a culture vulture. Okay. Well, however you want to sleep with yourself at the end of the night, that's fine. But I wanted to put it out there because people are saying that he's using it to discredit me. Uh, but the, the idea that I wanted to do a documentary with Reggie Wright Jr., if fact checked, true, I did. And I think I had every good reason to do it. It was all done in good faith. And the fact that he is trying to spin this and somehow characterize this as a way to discredit me or to uh, make me look worse in the eyes of, of the public, that just speaks to his character. And I do not need to be lectured. 
I don't need to be judged by a man who's in prison for uh, money laundering and drug trafficking, okay? I don't need convicted felons telling me how to live my life. My life has been just fine, thank you very much, without con committing felony acts. Uh, I've been fine, somehow managed to get by and have wonderful kids and a big family without dealing drugs, without that, and because I actually went, spent my time to get a skill, to get education, to get that. Uh, you know, the fact that Reggie Wright says that he is actually, uh, he can't find a job or that he has a hard time finding work, that's the saddest thing in the world for me to hear because you want to talk about a blown opportunity and a fucked up opportunity. This guy sat in charge of a company that had millions of dollars running through it. He couldn't have paid for his own school. He couldn't have paid to go to trade school. He couldn't have paid to have private tutors or the kind of money that uh, Death Row was bringing in. Reggie Wright could have had a private tutor to teach him to do anything. Could have taught him the computer. Could have taught him any number of other things to do to give him a skill that he could have gone, gone and gotten a job. Maybe gotten his degree in, in uh, uh, investigation. I mean, I know he did some college. I don't know if he got a degree or not. Maybe he did. But, you know, he the fact that he's never capitalized and used that, never capitalized on all the money and time and authority that he had during all of those years to say now that you've got nothing to show for it except for the million dollar house you're living in. Um, you have nothing to show for it. You can't find a job. That That's sad to me. It's really dis it's a disappointing thing. But I wanted to go and clear the air of that because that's what I know. And, and uh, I just think that if you heard the whole story, again, it's just an idea of Reggie spinning. So that's on that. And we'll just leave it at that. Rumors of my death been highly exaggerated. I'ma face so many obstacles. Thankful that I made it. Where the rules are often broken. Things get complicated in the land where the strongest man ain't got a chance. Never use your brain to shut up and do your dance. So they got these cats twisted by jewels, money, and cars. Me, I lost my brothers and others in street walls. Got rules to the game, but unable to enforce. So before I lose my life, I just might come take yours. Nigga, kill you for a dollar. No honor among thieves. Push a button on your and squeeze triggers with ease. Drop your please believe. So keep your circle. I said it's death for the signer, but a lot of motherfuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with. You better watch who's around you, cause your foes might surround you. Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick. I said it's death before the signer, but a lot of motherfuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with. You better watch who's around you, cause your foes might surround you. Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick. I gave you niggas support, opened up my home, and all that love got me with shots same to my dome. Baby mama ducking strays, I'm thinking about my son ducking and dodging. Lord, help me aim this gun. As crazy as that sounds, man, the devil keep heat. He don't hesitate to pull, so watch it out when he creep. I gave you niggas a dream. You try to sell me one down to the end, or maybe it was the end of me, huh? Give a nigga an inch, he'll try to take off a foot. I give him nine millimeters and his death to a hook, and it never take much. Same bitch, another nigga dead. Jealous homicide, all she wanted was bread. Then it's another nigga ride, another nigga died. If you see the trend, I cuff that bitch, pimping and slide. Life's cheap as a diamond, and the minds you keep around. I keep expensive weapons when you plotting my crown. Said it's death for the signer, but a lot of motherfuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with. You better watch who's around you, cause your foes might surround you. Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick. I said it's death before the signer, but a lot of motherfuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with. You better watch who's around you, cause your foes might surround you. Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick. Uh, fuck paranoia, confused with the later days. Niggas wanna be hard and pass through the bad ways. I'm a warrior. Sticks and stones, barefoot the unknown, and eat pride in small bowls. What the fuck is growth? Theft all over me. 
Very traceable history was home to me. Maybe a chrome, my health, and some loyalty. And I was made by force, no chance of curing me. I fear God, not the police, there's no threat. Any terrorist with a bomb strapped to his chest. I stay ready, I've been so close to death. And it explains my actions even after the fact. But when I catch you on the streets, morales are cut. And you'll be leaking life so quick and so much. I left the similes out so you can get my point. Only a matter of time, I won't change my I choice. Death for the sign of what a lot of motherfuckers. Fuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with You better watch who's around you Cause your foes might surround you Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick I said it's dead before the sign up But a lot of motherfuckers ain't got honor in their hearts to begin with You better watch who's around you Cause your foes might surround you Over dollars over bitch niggas get killed quick Kill quick, kill quick, kill quick mackerel that was a lot of stuff and uh you know obviously during the rest of the season you're going to see even more than that you know you got a double show this time around lord knows how long the next shows are going to be but hang around because we got some good stuff coming up until then this is rj bond and that's what i know rj bond what i know is a production of martin productions incorporated Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. No part of this may be used without express written permission of Martin Productions.